Good morning, everyone. Everyone wouldn't mind turning their phones to mute. Somebody's got their phone buzzing and rattling. That would be great for me. Let's um, open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father God, as we come before you this afternoon, or this morning, Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts and minds to what you have for us, and that you would close our ears to any error that I may speak. Lord, as we continue our series in Second Samuel, and as we come into these interesting battle scenes, these exciting battle scenes, Lord, I ask that you would help us to mine, to mine them for what they mean. Lord, so often when we come to battle scenes, we get swept up in the excitement of them. We don't kind of understand the theology of them. And yet, they are in Scripture for a reason. And so, Father, I ask that you would teach us now, what is this passage about? Open our hearts and minds to it. Help us to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So, blood is blood. That's what my cousin taught me when I was young. So my family is from Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, growing up as a boy uh, in Virginia, that's where I mostly grew up. I did spend a lot of time overseas. My dad worked zealously to drive the accent out of us. I used to say eggs and legs and all that stuff, and my dad didn't like that, so he made me say eggs and legs. And uh, my mom did still have the Oklahoma accent, but he worked to drive that out of her too. Not sure why he didn't like that accent, but we were in Northern Virginia, and people didn't speak like that, so he worked that out of us diligently. And then, of course, we were overseas, and my dad was kind of a a grammar Nazi, and so that's what he kind of worked into us, and so that's how it was. But blood is blood is a Texas saying, and it's just a family saying. It means uh, similar to family first, and many of you have heard that saying. Family is all important to take care of your own. Blood is thicker than water. How many of you have heard that? The Texans have all kinds of interesting sayings, funny sayings. She makes a hornet look cuddly. You may have heard that one. Faster than a sneeze through a screen door. Uh, You may not have heard that one, but that is another one. Lots of simple down-to-earth sayings, too. Uh, There were all kinds that my grandfather had when I'd go back home. It was hilarious listening to him. But this one kind of stuck with me, and I've told it to my kids hundreds of times. In fact, one of the first times one of my sons heard it was when my daughter was pushed into a pricker bush by a bully. That bully happened to be one of my, one of my son's best friends, and so when I heard that, uh, he thought it was funny, and he didn't understand why I was angry, and I pulled him inside, and I put him on my knee, and I talked to him about blood is blood, and I taught him what that meant. And I said, look, you know, outside of these walls, all kinds of people are going to come against you. You're going to have lots of friends, and friends are going to come and go, and if you're lucky, you're going to have a few friends that are going to stick with you your whole life. But your brother and your sister, they are going to be with you your whole life. And you don't need to be working against your own brother and sister, and it's best for you if you learn how to have a great relationship with these two. It's not always going to work out, but if you keep a good relationship with these two, it's going to pay dividends for the rest of your life. And so in these walls, we work on being a family, and we protect ourselves against people who attack us from outside of these walls. And so blood is blood, son, means that you protect your own and that you protect your family against those who would hurt them. You stand up for your blood. 
And he never made that mistake again. In fact, none of my family did, and that's a big, important thing for them. But here's the thing. We all know that family doesn't always work out for the best. Siblings don't always turn out to be good people. Blood is blood is typically a solid teaching. But what happens when your blood turns out to be spoiled? And by spoiled, I don't mean bratty. Plenty of us have bratty brothers and sisters. That happens all the time. We pick on them. That's kind of fun. But what I mean by spoiled is what happens when your blood turns out to be wicked? What happens when they turn out to be evil? What happens when they turn out to be a genuinely awful person? Some of you know what I mean by that. Some of you may have brothers or sisters or parents or grandparents or grandchildren or children that have turned out that way. Well then, should there be a limit to your family loyalty? Is there a limiting principle to blood is blood? I mean, if you were in leadership of a country and your family was doing evil things and it was hurting your people, should you stand up to them? Is there a limit then? If you're a boss in a company or you're a leader in your city and your family is doing something bad, someone in your family, should you stand up to them? Is there a limiting principle? That's the dilemma faced by the characters in our passage this morning. So let's look at it. We'll turn with me to first or second Samuel <clears throat> eighteen. Well Absalom has finally met his father in the field of battle, and that's where we left off last time. Remember, Absalom was sending out his troops, right? He had listened to he had denied the or sorry, rejected the advice of Ahithophel. He had listened to Hushai, right? And that remember that in the last in the last chapter we studied last week. Hushai had deceived him, and so uh, Absalom had sent out his entire army to meet David in the field rather than sitting out, sending out two hitmen to try to kill David. And so David is sending out his army, Absalom is sending out his army, and they are going to meet in the field of battle. But they're going to meet in a field of battle that David chooses, not the field of battle that Absalom chooses. David is pretty sharp. But here's the thing. David is not going with his men into the field of battle. Now, this seems odd because David is a fantastic general. And you would expect, especially during this Civil War period where the men are going out to fight for David, that David, as a good king, would lead his men. But here's what we read. We read that the three commanders of David's men, he divides his armies into three, sends them out into the field because they're going to attack in certain formations. We're not, we don't hear about all the formations, but he's going to attack in a certain way. Those three commanders say, David, we don't want you to go. Why? He says, if you go, all of Absalom's forces are going to concentrate on whichever army you lead, and they're only going to focus on trying to kill you. Now, that's actually a time-honored strategy. Alexander the Great actually defeats the armies of Persia that way. His armies are much smaller than the Persian forces, and what he realizes when his armies are getting defeated badly and they're horribly outnumbered, he says, look, there's the Persian king, and he forms his army into kind of like an arrowhead, and he charges at the Persian king, and as soon as he gets close to the Persian king, the Persian king bolts to try to save his life. The troops see it, and all the troops flee, and Alexander wins the battle. 
And so this kind of strategy <clears throat> is a time-honored strategy, and especially in a civil war, because if you can kill the king, then you win the war. And so David chooses not to go into battle. It's a decision that he is going to deeply regret. Why? Well, it's probably not a wise decision either, because if his armies are defeated, then what's going to happen to David? He's probably going to die anyway. But his troops are thinking, well, even if we lose, we'll live to fight another day. But the decision is going to reap bad consequences for him. Now, as his men are marching out, we read this command, 2 Samuel 18, 5. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, these are the three generals he sends out at the head of each of his forces, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. For all the, and all the people heard when the king gave his orders to all the commands about Absalom. So here you go. Blood is blood. This is what David is dealing with. Blood is blood. Take care of my family. So, This order is given so loudly that all the people hear it. So this is basically what's happening. As they're marching through the gates of this city, each commander is leading his army out. David, the king of Israel, is screaming at the top of his lungs because everyone can hear it, make sure not to hurt my son Absalom. That's how everyone can hear it. This is the command he's sending his troops into the field. Now, follow me. Absalom has rebelled against his troops, against his king. He's caused a civil war. This is what's going on. These troops are going to fight fight for King David. They're going to risk their lives, right? Their friends, their fathers, their brothers are going out to fight for this king against this man who is leading a rebellion, who is trying to kill them. And as they're marching out, to fight against this rebel king who has led this rebellion to kill, the king says, don't kill him. Now, how should we know who we shouldn't kill? Oh, he's the one who's going to be dressed in the pretty armor, looking beautiful, leading the forces that are trying to kill you all. The one trying to kill everyone out there, don't hurt him. Allow him to kill all of you, you don't kill him. What do you think David's men are thinking? What do you think David's generals are thinking? Is that a wise command? Blood is blood. But should that be the path David is following? Is that wise advice here? So to describe, to drive that point home, the author describes what happens. 2 Samuel 18, 7. And the men of Israel, that's Absalom's forces, were defeated by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day. 20,000 men die. 20,000 men. 2 Samuel 18, 8. The battle spread over the face of the country. And the forest devoured more people on that day than the sword. So something happens in a forest battle. So this is not to be missed. David has a wise strategy. He leads the men of Absalom into the forest. Why? 
Well, in the forest, if you have greater numbers and you're fighting a more advanced force, so the, the, the forces of Absalom are greater in number. That's what Hushai says. Look, you have all these men, Absalom. You're just going to crush them, right? Just take all these guys and go crush David. What Hushai knows is that David's troops are highly experienced, right? These are like the special forces of Israel versus the massive numbers of Israel. So how do the massive numbers kill the special forces? Well, they meet them on an open battlefield where they can stand far off and shoot arrows and slings and whatever and surround them and just just put their massive numbers in use. But arrows and slings are of no use in the forest, right? Because in the woods, you can't just shoot a whole barrage of arrows and slings because the trees break it up, and the bushes break it up, and you can't see where people are coming from. And the special forces can hide in the trees and the bushes and jump out at you. And so they fight in the woods, and David's men are able to ambush and surprise them and attack them and wipe them out. 20,000 men die. It's horrific. This is the battle. This is what David's commanders see. Absalom's defeated. And as the arrogant Absalom flees, he realizes Hushai's deception has worked. He's running off on a donkey, and his hair is caught in a thicket. This is kind of humorous. Absalom has been arrogant the entire time, and his golden flowing locks catch in a tree. And they're so thickly caught in a tree that he can't get himself out. He's dangling by his feet. For long enough where men can report he's dangling by his feet, for long enough when he gets killed he can't cut himself out of the tree, he is caught by his hair. It is somewhat of a humorous situation. It's an ironic situation. It's a dark humor, and he can't get his way out. And this man comes and reports in 2 Samuel 18.10, a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw him hanging in an oak. 2 Samuel 18.11, Joab said to the man who told him, what you, what, you saw him? Why didn't, did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver in the belt. So according to Joab, this man makes a mistake, But why is the general here asking a soldier to disobey the king? That's the question. How in the world could Joab be doing that? Isn't Joab a rebel? Now, the answer that the man gives tells us what he thinks about Joab. This is a common soldier in the general's army responding to the general. This is like responding to General Patton or General Eisenhower or Douglas MacArthur. And the soldier says this in 1812. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, millions of dollars, I would not reach my hand against the king's son. For in the hearing of the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for my sake to protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, there is nothing hidden from the king. You yourself would have stood aloof. And Joab said, I'm not going to waste my time with you. What does he understand about Joab? Dude, you're going to hang me out to dry. You might give me ten silver pieces, but then it's my head. Because I know you're not a man of honor. You're going to, you're going to tell the king, oh, this dude did it. I'm in trouble. And Job said, Joab goes, I'm not going to waste my time. 
on you. And then he goes and he finds Absalom and he kills him. Now here's the thing. Is this the right thing to do? Is Joab doing a wicked thing, killing the king's, king's son? David has ordered him, don't kill him. Joab comes and kills him. Now, most commentators say this is the wrong thing to do. He's not killing him in an honorable way. He's hanging in a tree, and he runs spears through him, and all his men surround him and kill the king's son. Also, the king has ordered him not to kill. What would you do? Would you bring him in and imprison him? Like in all the movies today, that's what you're supposed to do. The hero is always supposed to just cut him down and bring him in and put him in prison. What would you do? Is Joab wicked here? Was David merciful and correct? It's a tough question. I'm not sure I agree with all the scholars here. I think, or many scholars here. I didn't read all the scholars. If you were a general and you just saw 20,000 people lose their lives, you looked over the battlefield and your friends and brothers and sons, and you were close to your men, and you saw what just happened, and you saw that the king's son had led this rebellion, and you saw that the slaughter was great, and you saw what this child had done, and you saw how twisted Absalom had become, and you, Joab, had, had vouched for this guy. The reason that, that he was even allowed back into the kingdom was because you stood up for him and you backed him because David at first had mercy for Absalom. He comes back into the kingdom, and then he rewards by doing this. He leads a whole rebellion. If he comes back and he's saved, and the king still desires to have mercy on him, he's going to lead another rebellion. If you saw all this happen, what would you do? You see, Joab is not a selfish man. If he was a selfish man, he would have led a rebellion against the king. He never leads a rebellion against King David. So I'm not sure that he's a wicked man in that sense. He does some pretty bad things, and later he's going to die for that. But I think Joab is a pragmatic man. He's looking over Israel, and he's saying, we can't keep doing this. And so he kills Absalom. I think it's really easy to be an armchair quarterback and pass that judgment when you didn't just see 20,000 people dead on the battlefield, right? From the safety of our homes, from the safety of our studies, when we didn't just see that slaughter, it's easy to point the finger and say, man, bad, bad Joab. The other question is David's desire to save Absalom a sin. Should David desire to save his boy at the cost of his kingdom? Is he doing the right thing? That's a big question throughout this whole chapter. Has he lost perspective? Well, the story of the two messengers then sent to tell David drives home how much I think David has lost his perspective. And I think that drives home to the audience how much. And that's what the author is trying to tell us. The Cushite runs with what should be glorious news to all the people. Yes, it should be a gut punch to the king. You lost your son. But consider you're the king. 
This slaughter has just happened. Your people have just gone out to fight. Your people have won a battle. And if this wasn't your son, the enemy king who has just led the rebellion was killed. On any other day, if that news was brought to you, is that a celebration or is that a time to mourn? Right? It's a celebration. And so the Cushite comes with what he thinks is good news. That's what he's bringing to the king. He says this is glorious news. And if you're the king, you have to act that way. You might go and weep in private, but you should, in front of all your people, be acting in a glorious way. Thank you, everybody. You did the right thing. That's how David should behave. The other messenger realizes this, and what does he do? He knows that Absalom is already dead, and he sprints ahead of things as fast as he can. He bolts, and he says to what? David, oh man, the armies were defeated. He wants the glory for himself. What about my son? Ah, there was a commotion. I don't know what happened. He knows what happened. We just read he knows what happened. Why does he do it? I want to bask in his glory. And then the Cushite comes and tells the, tells the real thing. The good and the bad news. But how does David react? 20,000 men have died over this battle. Men have died for him. What does the king do? Does he stand up and say, thank you men? Thank you for your sacrifice? Thank you sons? Thank you, mothers, for sending out your boys to die for me. Thank you, fathers, for sacrificing your lives for me. Thank you, men, for, taking, for losing arms and eyes and whatever for me. Thank you for all that. I cannot thank you enough. He doesn't do any of that. He stands up and says, And the king was deeply moved in 1833 and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son Absalom, would that I have died instead of you. O Absalom, my son, my son. What is he saying? Would that I have lost the battle. Blood is blood. Why did he even send his men out to fight? Can you imagine being the generals and the soldiers and hearing that? Would that I have died. What? What did we just do? Why did we lose our lives? What kind of leader is this? David has completely lost perspective. Many of you are leaders, or will one day be leaders, and this story is a tale of leadership gone awry, and in Joab's case, maybe leadership done well. As leaders, it can get all too easy to lose focus on the group because of our loyalty to the one. As believers, we're certainly called to care for the lost, we're called to care for the helpless, the poor, and the needy. But that's not of whom I'm speaking. We're always called to look out for those folks. When we're called to leadership positions in the church and charities and work and society, 
It means that we are called to lead groups of people, not just one person. And this is hard for people. It means that we can't favor the one over the many. It means that we have to look out for the group. It means that we can't favor our own blood over the group. It means that we can't favor our own friend over the group. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that we have to punish our friends or our family if they're doing a good job. It means that we can't look out for them if they're doing a bad job, if they're hurting the group. I see this all the time. This is the failure of leadership. We're so attached to the one that we're willing to sacrifice the all. I was on a church staff at one point, and our pastor was such a man of compassion that he hired all these people on a church staff. There was a church of a thousand people, and he hired all these people that were kind of lost and broken onto the staff. But the staff became quite abusive of the people because they were all lost and broken people. And he kept on allowing them to abuse the people. And it led to a really nasty situation in the church. It really began to damage and to impact the church. It also began to damage and impact any healthy people that he hired onto the church until the next rector came and cleaned up the situation and began to hire good people. And what he said is, look, we're here to serve the church, not to serve the few. As leaders, you have to care for the broad group. You have to understand that sometimes that means disciplining the one. And if you can't handle that role, then it's your duty to step down. It's hard to be a leader. It's hard to pull the trigger on hard decisions. The Lord puts us in leadership no matter where we are as believers. It's a calling. And our calling is to care for those underneath us. And if we've accepted that role, then we need to accept the mantle of leadership. If we can't handle that, if we can't pull the trigger because of our fear of not being liked, or because of our fear of hurting someone else, then we need to resign. Then we need to step down. And if we've been called to that position from the Lord, and we're struggling with that, then we need to fall on our knees and pray and ask for God's strength and step up and do the right thing. Leadership is hard, which is why the godly leader must spend time in the Word and on their knees. Leadership is tough, and this is why the Lord calls us to respect our leaders. We've all seen this during this COVID crisis, right? Leadership during the COVID crisis has not been easy at all. Well, it's not been easy at all except if you're at home and an armchair quarterback. For armchair quarterbacks, it's been quite simple. For those at home and on television judging the decision makers every night, it's been super easy. But think about this. Scroll back over the last six months with your favorite TV personality who's been criticizing whichever leader you want and watch how they've changed their opinions over the last six months. So many of these folks who were criticizing leaders saying this crisis wasn't that severe and they were making too many hard decisions, 
closing things down or this decision, they were being too easy and that they, they, they change and they flip-flop all the time because it's easy to be an armchair quarterback. It's easy when you're not making tough decisions, when people's lives aren't on the line. It's much harder when they are. It's hard to lead. And that's why people don't like leading in a crisis. David and Joab are both leading in a crisis. And like all of our leaders, they do some things well and they do other things poorly. The only constant they can count on is that they have thousands of years of armchair quarterbacks to tell them how they did. Amen.